Thank you, Ted, for leading us in prayer and before the throne of grace. Thank you, uh, Danny and praise team, Jonathan and Peter, for just helping us this morning and tuning our hearts to uh, praise the Lord as is worthy of the upright. A couple of plugs uh, today. Obviously, we get a break from Cornerstone this week, and and, uh, in part, that's one of the reasons why we get a chance to have a church picnic afterwards. So um, I hope to see you all there. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention as well is uh, I believe this evening there's going to be a a Zoom call for parents that Kevin Chan is coordinating. Our desire is to restart our children's ministry. And uh, we understand that this is one of God's great gifts to us, a mission field in our midst and our priority to share the good news with our children And uh, we want to start by praying together as parents and to hear your hearts and to gather together. We understand that it's a ministry of the gospel begins with us. And our children are given as a gift for our sanctification. And, uh, And it's also an opportunity for us to gather together to see how the Lord wants us in the days ahead to reopen and uh, to restart the children's ministry. And we start on our knees in prayer for each one of you and uh, the children of the church. So uh, please join us for that. Uh, I also want to make a plug. There's a lot of plugs today, right? To um, just to be praying for our church um, in the days ahead as uh, the COVID Incidences start to come down as Santa Clara County reconsiders uh, what the stipulations are. Our desire and intent is to do everything we can to gather together while keeping you safe and while honoring God's commands and uh, while trying to come under the authority of the government where it does not conflict with Christ and his word. So please keep us in prayer. Um, If you're watching online or wherever you are, if it's your desire to gather together with the people of God, just reach out for us and in unity and in prayer, we'll try and find a way in which we can make this work in the days ahead. And and we're actively praying for that. Finally, for our anniversary, uh, we gave out some books to seek and to save to get us ready um, for Easter And we have extras, so if you did not receive one or you would like one, whether you're a member of the church or not, please reach out to Ryan Chan after the service. We would be happy to give these to you. Uh, Here's the other thing, because we have extras. If you have a family member, a co-worker, or someone in mind who you think would benefit, please see Ryan, one per member, uh, either this or the First Timothy uh, book or also the uh, children's book, we would love to get those into the hands and to give those to people who are connected with you who would be encouraged so that you can give a gospel blessing to someone who might not be a member of our church but uh, who you have a contact or a witness with. So please see Ryan for those things. Well, we've been walking through Genesis 3 and we've been walking through the Lord God's just judgment of sin in the Garden of Eden. And uh, unlike the world's judgment and justice, this judgment and justice, as, as Ted prayed, is good news. And it's good news because, like God, the justice and judgment of God's Word is righteous and it's good. 
Um, I phoned my mother this morning because it is her birthday today, February 28th, a special day in the Chin family. And I was able to let her know God gave us this message for her birthday. The justice and judgment of God as it pertains to a woman's desire in the marriage. And we were able to laugh together. But this morning, we come to Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16. And uh, it is the Lord God's judgment of the first woman in the garden. Where the Lord God says to the first woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to, that's the ESV, or your desire shall be for, that's the NESB, your husband. But he shall rule over you. Now, in our era of confusion and conflict, over gender, over men and women's relationships, and over men and women's roles in the church, in marriage, in the corporation. This verse has become one of the most misunderstood and controversial verses in the church. In the world, well, they don't really care too much, but in the church, absolutely. And there is an ongoing battle for evangelical feminism on the one side and complementarianism and egalitarianism. And there are multiple flavors of interpretations about how we're to understand and how we're to apply this verse, even within conservative evangelical circles. When I was in medical school, I was made aware of a group of conservative Christians who allegedly believed This verse taught that giving and receiving pain medication during labor was contrary to God's will for women. And then when I arrived in seminary, I discovered that one of the most popular opinions among conservative evangelicals is the interpretation that the desire that the Lord God speaks about in this verse, your desire shall be, Okay, the interpretation is that the woman's desire spoken of here by God is the woman's desire to dominate and control her husband. And the basis for this interpretation, which is very popular too in biblical counseling circles, and it is cited in Wayne Grudem and John Piper's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The basis of this interpretation, that the woman's desire that's being spoken of here is a woman's desire to dominate and control her husband. The basis of it is the similarity of the language and grammar of this verse to the language and grammar of Genesis 4, verse 7b, where the Lord tells a very angry and discontent Cain who's upset with his brother because his brother's offering has been accepted by the Lord and his has not, where the Lord tells Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Hopefully you can see here on the screen, I've underlined for you the two different verses and the similarities uh, which are used, and the similarities are used as the basis for saying, 
this desire is similar. The desire for sin to control Cain. Well, this is the desire that God is talking about for a woman and a desire to dominate and control her husband. And from this interpretation, the argument is made that these, quote unquote, these words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. And as a result of the fall, man must fight for his headship. The woman's desire is to control her husband, to usurp his divinely appointed headship, and he must master her if he can. How are you doing, men? All right. Well, allegedly, by this interpretation, Genesis 3.16 is the origin of spousal rivalry, of marital conflict, of spousal manipulation, and spousal abuse. Okay? Well, what are we to make of all these interpretations? And what are we to make of interpretations that are given sometimes by leaders who we respect and have been good shepherds in our lives? And these works and interpretations have come into mainstream Christianity. If you read many of the blog articles done by many of the people you respect, sometimes these articles or these reviews, which first, and this opinion first came in the Westminster Theological Seminary Journal, and it was done as an argument against evangelical feminism. But now they are cited as mainstream uh, opinions, as this is the standard and this is what's going on. If you just go through and look Genesis 3.16 and look at a number of different conservative evangelical Blogs. How are we supposed to understand these different views? What are we to make of it? What are we and you, people who haven't necessarily been to seminary or read all the academic journals, how are we to make sense of these things? Well, Jesus says, unless we turn and become like children, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we don't enter into the kingdom of heaven, we surely will not understand the kingdom of heaven, or the words of heaven, and how we're to understand and apply them. And when it comes to rightly understanding and applying God's word, especially the hard parts, there are two essentials that every believer needs. Whether you've been to seminary, whether you write blogs or journals, or whether you're just newborn Christian, there are two essentials, and they are humility and help. Humility and help. Brothers and sisters, this is not a place for swagger or jumping on a debate or an argument or getting our pistols out or taking a side. This is a place where we begin in a humble position and asking for the help we need and not presuming that we are the experts that we are not. And I spent much of this week, brothers and sisters, this was obviously a tough week. I'll tell you for sermon prep, it was a stretch for me. And I emailed the elders and said, please pray for me. This is a rough one for me. All right? And I emailed everybody, many of the people who I knew, and just said, please pray for me. Sermon prep has been difficult this week. This is a hard, hard passage and it's a delicate one. And I even reached out to Dr. Buznitz from the seminary, who was kind enough to shepherd me this week by phone. But brothers and sisters, you don't need a seminary professor. It's nice to have. Okay? But the good news of God's word 
for all believers, whether you're a new believer or an old believer, is the humility and help we need to rightly understand and apply God's word is found in Christ. Christ Jesus gives freely to those who ask by faith. And he gives it by his spirit and his word. Doesn't mean we don't have to work. Doesn't mean we don't have to read the passage multiple times. Doesn't mean it's not painful and difficult. But Christ does indeed give the help that we need. And so before we go any further, first, I want us to look to Christ to give us the help we need to handle this passage in a way that's pleasing to him. And then after, we're going to look briefly at Matthew 19, 1 through 8, to see how Jesus himself handles the issue of marriage and handles the text of Genesis to inform the way in which we should be handling uh, the passages that we read in Genesis. So let's just ask, if you would, with me for um, Christ's help and humility and prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we are men, sinful, fallen And uh, redeemed, yes, but not yet perfect until you come again and complete. And our hearts cloud our eyes, Lord. Our experience and opinions muddy the waters. And we are your children and we desperately need your help, Lord. Better, Lord, than a commentary. Better than a seminary at the end of the day, Lord Jesus. What we need is your spirit And your word. And we need your grace and your help, Lord. To rightly divide this word. And to understand and appreciate it in the way that you want us to, Lord Jesus. So that our lives might be filled with your truth and grace. And not the opinions of the world. So help us at this time. In your name we pray. And thank you for what you'll do. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 19. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8 before we come back to Genesis 3.16. And we're going to see how Jesus himself understands, interprets, and applies the word of the Lord. Especially Genesis. Okay? Matthew 19, 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. The Greek here is sclerocardia. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, it's worth noting, you know if you spend time with me, this is a passage I go to frequently. I go to it frequently in our our premarital time together, but I also go through it 
typically uh, whenever we gather for um, exegesis time. And uh, one of the reasons I do that is because we get an opportunity in this passage to see how Jesus himself handles hermeneutics, how he exegetes and interprets scripture. And if he's our Lord and if he's the son of God and he knows the mind of God, there's nobody better to understand and follow and be taught by as far as how you handle God's word. And what's very interesting as you go through the gospel of Matthew is two of the places where Jesus very explicitly shows how he exegetes and interprets scripture. The details, the grammar, the big picture, the context, all of those different things. Uh, One is here in Matthew 19. The other is, uh, I believe it is in Matthew 22. Both of them have to do with scriptures that take place in Genesis. At least this one mostly explicitly in Genesis. But they also, 22 less so, but they both have to do with marriage and the relationships between men and women. It's very interesting. Right? That there is an issue and a problem at the time that really comes up in our relationships with the opposite sex. It becomes a bit of a rub and it's the place where God uses that rub and that conflict and our difficulties in those areas to really highlight, are we understanding God's word correctly? Now, Matthew 19 comes after Matthew 18, where Jesus has dealt with sin and the lack of forgiveness and how we deal with those things. And then we come into Matthew 19, and the Pharisees are testing Jesus about what is lawful with regards to male and female relationships in marriage and with regards to divorce. And they're trying to entice him and trap him and draw him into one of these hot theological debates that divided Judaism at that time about marriage, about divorce, about men and women's rights or roles. And as you see, things haven't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. And Jesus humbles and helps them and us by asking in verse 4, Have you not read? The implication here is you've ignored God's word. Well, of course, they're Pharisees. They're experts. They probably could have recited much of the law by heart. But what's apparent here is their esteem of their own opinions and their discussion and debate. Rabbi Hillel, all the different rabbis at that time, their esteem of their opinion and their experience seems to be much more in focus than their esteem or consideration of the word of the Lord. Functionally. Okay? And it's not dissimilar from the temptation for us. And for many of us, even those who are in seminary, where you can become preoccupied with what John MacArthur says, what John Piper says, what all these different experts say, to the point where we forget what the word of the Lord has said. And Jesus identifies the problem here. Verse 4, have you not read? And then in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. That hermeneutics, brothers and sisters, and understanding and rightly understanding applying God's word is an issue of the heart. If the lens of the eye is dark, you're going to see everything dark. The relationships in your marriage, your friends, your church, God's word. If there is light, you're going to see it with the light that God gives. It's an issue, brothers and sisters, of the heart. And what's in our heart? 
Jesus clearly identifies the issue here is this issue of hardness of heart and ignoring God's word, not handling God's word in the way it was intended to be handled. And the big issue that's going to come up over and over again is do we handle God's word according to our desires or do we handle our desires according to God's word? Do we handle God's word according to our desires or do we handle our desires according to God's word? That's going to come up over and over and over again. And the issue with the Pharisees was, okay, there were things that they wanted to do. How do we find the portion of God's scripture that's going to justify, that's going to prove text, that's going to fit my agenda and my desire? And Jesus throughout his ministry shows that in spite of their great knowledge of the word of God and all their great education, at the end of the day, it's their fallen desires that are driving their exegesis. God's word is not driving their desires. And it demonstrates in the end that they are actually children of the devil, deceitful desires, who end up crucifying the son of God rather than bowing at his feet. Bible knowledge, brothers and sisters, is not going to get you into heaven. It's a heart by faith that is transformed and forgiven by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, what's the remedy according to Jesus in this passage in Matthew 19? Ultimately, brothers and sisters, he calls us to understand and apply God's word in the way God intended us to understand and apply it. Okay, and I put down all these different points, and there's an awful lot up there. That's for your reference. But, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Son of God. He loves the Father. He has the mind of the Father. And he's just pointing out, we need to appreciate God's Word for what it is. It is God's Word. And he calls them and us, in verse 4 and 5, to humbly read and receive God's Word and God's work in the way God intended them to be read and received. As the literal, historical, God-breathed words and work, not a myth. The words and work of the one who created us. So in verse 4, he says, he who created them, male and female. And then in verse 5, he says, this one, he who created them, he said. And he points out those words that are written at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Those come from the mouth of God. It's not a proverb, it's not a saying. Those come from the mouth of God. Number one, as we come to God's word, do we receive it as the word of God? Or do we stand over it like a medical textbook? Or a piece of computer code? Something to manage or manipulate? And then Jesus proceeds to interpret and apply God's word in the divine order and context the Lord God gave them. Verse 4, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? And then in verse 8, as he closes out, he says, from the beginning. He makes the point, this is God's love letter to us. And in God's love letter to us, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it matters the order. You can't take a piece of it and mix and match and take a whole slew of different proof texts and join them together to get them to say what you want. 
been a not uncommon phenomenon when someone is discontent in the local church that they go online and they read all the blogs and they go to all the respected people, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, uh, you know, all the biblical counseling people, and they find the article or the snippet that supports their agenda, and then they send it in and start circulating it to everybody. Well, Jesus comes here and he says, we need to honor this. You know, Peter likes to use the illustration, that word of symphony, okay? It's the idea that you come in with God's word and you are hearing a symphony That God is the writer and composer and conductor. And there may be many parts, but you're listening to it and appreciating it in the way it was written and orchestrated to be heard from beginning to end. And that's, brothers and sisters, when it makes beautiful music. Not when we take it to the chop shop of our desires or our agenda. And this is what Jesus is addressing with the Pharisees. And this is why he's talking about their hardness of heart and the issue of divorce. is because they're pressing their issue because some of them want out of their marriages. And they're looking for a ticket to be righteous and do what I want. And brothers and sisters, when it's our fallen desires that drives our exegesis, that's when we end up with 20 or 30 or 40 different opinions. Okay? And it becomes scrambled eggs. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? And in verse 5 and 6, Jesus brings us to the divine intent or purpose of God's word and work. Where he's working, he says, consider who it's saying to you, who's talking to you. Consider the order with which he's given it to you. Consider the context of his words and then consider his heart and his desire. Why is he giving this to you? It's Jesus' prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name, set apart. Jesus walks through something very similar in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, My desires be done? No, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you see in the garden before Jesus is crucified, what does he say? Lord, if you could take this cup away from me, but not my will be done, but thy will be done. And this is a child's desire, a child of the kingdom. Your desire is to know your father's will because you have a good father who loves you. You might not understand what he's doing. It might be difficult. His discipline at times might be painful. But you know he loves you and your desire is to trust and understand the will of his word and his work. And sometimes we don't understand it till we grow up, brothers and sisters. And we just have to ride and roll with it for a bit. Well, Jesus calls us to really understand the will of the Father. And so in verse 6, he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And here Jesus, the Son of God, filled with the Spirit, shows us the aim of rightly dividing God's word. It's to know the heart and mind and will of the Father. And he shows us the intent of this passage of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 especially. And he shows us that it still counts even after sin has come into the world and we're still accountable and this is where God is taking us. That God's desire is for unity and holiness in our marriages and in our relationships according to God's word. Okay, I want to make a point here. Brothers and sisters, when we separate the details of God's word, the words and the grammar, and we separate it from the context, 
We separate it from the order and we separate it from the will and intent, the gospel. Because the gospel shows us the clearest expression of God's will. His hatred of sin, but his grace and provision of salvation for sinners. The God who saves. He saves not by justifying our sin. He saves by crucifying his son so that you can be forgiven and be justified. Okay, The will of the Father. When we separate the details of Scripture, I don't care how much of an expert you are in Hebrew and Greek and how many word studies you do and grammatical analysis. When we separate the details from the will and the order and the context that God has given it, we are proof testing. Excuse me, proof texting. We're twisting God's word for our sinful desires. And we're in dangerous, dangerous territory, brothers and sisters. Okay? And the sweetness is that Jesus has come and he's shown us how he wants to handle things. And it's by faith at the end of the day, brothers and sisters. What all that is at the end of the day, yeah, there's a formula up there. It's by faith that trusting that these are the words God gave you, that he gave them to you for a reason, and he gave them to you in a way and for a purpose, and it's love for you because he's drawing you to himself. That's, that's it. It's faith. It's we're going we're gonna to trust it, even if it's hard to understand, even if it makes me uncomfortable, even if it's difficult. And so as we come to Genesis 3.16, we've got to say, we have to understand this text and these words in that way. And just because there's a similarity in the words and grammar of Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7, we don't jump up and down all of a sudden and say, there it is. And I say this to you to warn you. I know this is a stretch, okay? And this sermon this morning is a stretch sermon. I told my wife last night, I said, honey, this is going to be a stretch sermon. And her point was, everything you do, Mark, is a stretch sermon. Okay, so, and don't, don't you worry, I'll get, uh, as I phone my parents, my dad will say, couldn't you have made it more entertaining? You know, it was a little bit hard, you know, so anything that you bring, don't worry. I get plenty of love like that from my dad and from my family, okay? But this one is going to be a stretch sermon, but I say this to you because I've sat where you've sat, and I've seen pastors come, and I've seen them say, here's the Greek, here's the word study, here's the grammar, and then use it to justify the most horrific truths that are contrary to the Spirit and the Word of God. And the congregation feels that because they know the Hebrew and Greek, they can't do anything. Rubbish. You love the Lord. You walk with Him by faith. You know Him and you know the sweetness of who He is. You're at least able to say, this is not right and this is not good. So this one's a little bit of a stretch. And so what we're going to do this morning, brothers and sisters, it's a little bit different we're going to consider the context and order of Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16 comes after what? Genesis 1 and 2. And 3, 1 through 15. And it comes before what? Genesis 4, 1 through 7. So we're going to consider the divine order, the divine context, and the divine will of all of the passages around that. Big picture. And then on a separate occasion, Lord willing, if the Lord allows me back into the pulpit, we're going to get into the details of the grammar. Okay, I want to spend this time because I want to be humble and I want to be gracious and I want to go through carefully with this and not rush through this so that you have a foundation in later years 
not to get manhandled by guys who are proof texting. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read it together. And at the end of each section, we're going to summarize the divine order and context and the divine message and purpose of each of these sections. And we're going to see how they inform how we're to understand Genesis 3.16. So ride with me, if you will, a little bit, okay? But I, I want to do this because I'd rather you hear God's words than my words. And Jesus has clearly shown when he says, have you not read, have you not taken the time to read the word? If you did, some of these things that are fuzzy to you would be obvious. Genesis 1. You go there, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit. Trees bearing fruit. And which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, 
And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock. And over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God. He created him. Male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them. Be fruitful. And multiply. And fill the earth. And subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said. Behold. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening And it was morning, the sixth day. All right, you just read Genesis 1 together. You've done your duty for the day. Okay, what's our divine order and context? And I think as we go through this, you're going to see that you probably know a lot more than you thought. What's our divine context? Where does this happen? This is the beginning, right? God steps in out of eternity. This is the beginning, and this is before the fall. Sin has not come into the world yet, right? And as we went through summary, by his word, God creates, he orders, and he provides for the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And in verse 26 and 28, part of this is the creation of the first man and woman. And the first man and woman are created as part of the good work and order of God's word. Okay, when we focus on proof text, what ends up happening is we think this is all about me. But when you go through Genesis 1, you see, yes, we are key. We are special. We're at the pinnacle at day six. But we're part of the good work of God's word. That's how God designed it from the beginning. We, our marriages, our relationships are to be part of God's good work. The work of his word, not the other way around where God is. And this is how we function, brothers and sisters, in an American Christianity. One day a week we come and we cram God into our lives, our work, our schedule, our planner. And God creates the first man and woman as co-image bearers. And they're called to fill and rule his creation with his blessing. How? Together. How? According to his word. And at the end we see that all of the work of God's word is very good in God's eyes. Now what's God's big picture message and purpose? Big picture. That's where we're going today in Genesis 1. It's up there on the screen. Number one, the God of the Bible is the very good and gracious creator and Lord of all. God's good, brothers and sisters. He's a good and gracious creator. He orders everything according to his word. He provides according to his word. He takes care of everything according to his word. And he's got a very good plan. 
And we might add our world, our lives, our relationships, our marriages. Our marriages are created by God as a part of the good work of His Word for His glory. It's the way everything, brothers and sisters, was meant to be. Okay? Now, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. 
Genesis 2, what's the context and the order? The divine order and context. This is in the garden. And this is before the fall. And we see that God creates and orders and provides very specifically for the roles and relationships of the first man and woman. And he does so, so that the first man and woman can fulfill God's word of Genesis 1. That they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Alright? And carry God's blessing into the entirety of creation. But this is the start and the beginning. And how does he do that? Well, he divides up the rules. And very clearly he shows that the first man here, even though they are equal, they are co-image bearers. The first man is the first. And he is the servant leader. Not better, not smarter, not brighter. Okay, but he has a role. He is the servant leader. And all the animals are brought to him to be named. But then God demonstrates that the man is not complete. According to his word. And so he creates a servant helper. And the beauty of this passage is remarkable. It helps us to appreciate what happens in Genesis 3 and what God's doing with His justice in Genesis 3. Just as a a little warning, what God is doing in Genesis 3 is He's bringing them back to the Word of the Lord, which they go away from with their sin. And we see the beauty at the end of this is what does God do? He, He not only fashions a helper fit for Him, but He brings her to Him. How great is that? And the work of God's word brings the first man and woman different, different, biologically, emotionally, psychologically framed different, yet complementary, different in roles. And yet the Lord brings them together as one. And the work of God's word in their life is though they are different, the work of his word is one of unity and holiness. What is God's message and purpose in Genesis 2? The gracious work of God's word in our lives, in our roles, in our relationships brings us to unity and holiness with God, with creation, and with one another. You show me, brothers and sisters... A man or a woman in whom God's Spirit, His Word, is working in that person's life. I will show you a person where the direction of their life is one of increasing unity with the Lord, with other believers, and yes, even the world around them, though they will divide over sin. We see once again that the God of the Bible is the very good and gracious creator and Lord of all, including our marriages and our relationships. And he is worthy, brothers and sisters, in our marriages and in our relationships of all our trust and all our worship. All right, we're almost there. Genesis 3. Have a look with me, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together And they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Where are we? We're still in the garden. What's the order? Well, this is the fall. And this is the time and place where sin and the devil's lies do indeed enter into the lives and the hearts and the marriage and the world of the first man and woman. And the result is that everything in their lives, in their roles, in their relationships with the Lord and with one another changes. In fact, it reverses. It becomes the opposite of what God's Word has done in their lives. Now, where does this leave us? Where does the battle of the sexes begin, brothers and sisters? Where does the destructive and divisive desires, where do they begin? Where does the desire to dominate, control, and abuse come in? It's in this section. It's when sin enters. Where does spousal abuse begin, brothers and sisters? Have a look at verse 12. Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The man throws his wife under the bus, so to speak. And where does the woman's desire to depart from her God-given role, where does that begin, brothers and sisters? It begins with the devil's lies. And what is, do you think, a woman's desire at the end of this? Are men and women united here? Are the husband and wife united? Well, God in his questioning of the first man and woman shows they're not together. They're very separate. They're in conflict. Or at least conflict will soon come. Now, we don't want to interpret... God's word through the light of our experience. We want to interpret our experience in the light of God's word. But I think we can say at the bare minimum 
as we come to the end of this passage, it's at least implied that this marriage and this relationship, which at the end of chapter 2 is so beautiful and unified, and you see this incredible, beautiful work of God's word uniting the first man and woman, even though they are different and their roles are different, we see a very, at least we can say, different picture here. And we can also see desires that are contrary to the word of the Lord that separate. What is God's message and purpose in Genesis 3, 1 through 13? Satan's lies and our sin deceive, defile, and divide everything in rebellion against the good rules, the good roles, and the good relationships of God and His Word. Okay, it's Satan's lies and sin that corrupts our desires and pits us against the Lord and one another and His Word that comes in and destroys a marriage, a family, a church, a community. Well, let's have a look at Genesis 14 and the end of the chapter. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be ESV contrary, NASB for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Divine order and context, where are we? Before or after sin? It's after, right? And we see here that for each player, God brings justice and he brings his judgment. But as you walk through this passage, you're going to see that for each player, the serpent, the woman, and the man, God's judgment in the big picture provides a condemnation it provides a punishment, and then it provides a correction. And for each of them, there is going to be something that is going to be hard and difficult in their life. 
And that's put at the beginning. The serpent's going to have to go on the ground. And is going to be unclean. Okay? And the woman is going to have pain in childbearing. And the man, as he labors and in his work, he's going to have pain in his work. But those are all God-given in Genesis 1 and 2 prescribed rules that they were given in the beginning. Those rules are going, they're returned to their rules, but now those rules, because of sin in the world, it's going to be difficult and painful. That is God's judgment. The world is going to continue under my rule, but now, because of sin, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be painful, and there's going to be suffering and anxiety and anguish. But if you look at the second portion for each one, the relationships that God ordained in Genesis 1 and 2 are restored. The serpent who has put himself above the woman is going to come below and be crushed by the seed of woman. The relationship that was broken between a man and woman, it's put back together, albeit with difficulty and adversity. And the labor and tilling of the soil, the rejection, the easy street, I'm going to eat the fruit, I'm going to live forever. Well, now you're going to eat, it's going to be difficult, you are going to work. And there's going to be a relationship there, but it's going to be hard. But it is still going to be the relationship, Adam, that I gave you in the beginning. To serve by caring for the soil. There's a restoration. And we see the intent and the purpose, brothers and sisters, of God's judgment and His justice is to bring sinners back to His Word. God is working towards unity and holiness, but now because of sin, unity and holiness comes at a price and a cost. And it is painful and it is difficult. The Lord's laying the foundation for the cross, brothers and sisters. Where you will see that to have true unity and holiness with the Lord and your husband and your spouse and your children and the members of the church, it's going to come. It's not going to come easy. Sin is going to make that hard. But God's word is going to prevail. And it will involve and necessitate a death, a death of our flesh and our desires And Christ is going to have to come in. But the Lord's word is good and it will do as it says. And we can rejoice and hope in his justice and his judgment. Because his justice and his judgment lays the path for us back to the Lord. We're going to close with this. Have a look at Genesis 4. Thank you for... Bearing with me this morning. Genesis 4.1 Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, 
and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to or for you. But you must rule over it. What's the context? It's after the fall and it's after God's judgment. And it's after they are banished outside of the garden, not in the garden. And what's God's message and purpose in Genesis 4-7? God's word is still gracious and true even in a sinful world. Just because you're out of the garden doesn't mean that God's word does not apply or do what it has intended to do. And the battle between sin and the devil's lies and the seed of the woman is real and continues. And what's the purpose of this passage? God is giving Cain a warning. Either you will master sin or sin will master you. The intent of God's word is unchanged. It's unity and holiness with God and one another. God's giving his word to Cain, who is struggling with anger for this very purpose. Don't do it, Cain. Don't let your desires, your deceitful desires, your emotions, your feelings rule you. Let the word of the Lord rule you. How does all of this help us apply? Yes, indeed. Genesis 3.16. The words are similar. Your desire shall be contrary to or for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And 4.7b. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to or for you, but you must rule over it. And the words and the grammar are similar. But brothers and sisters, the context is completely different. And the order is different. And the message and purpose of each of these passages is different. In one, someone has sinned and God is bringing justice and judgment to restore that person to the order and rule of his word. In the other, a person is about to sin and God is giving a warning to prevent that person from sinning. Yes, bigger picture, God is trying to keep them both in the order of his word. But they're two different circumstances and applications. It's a little bit like me saying, I love chocolate. And then later saying, I love my wife. The subject is the same, I. The verb is the same, love. The object, two objects that I love. But brothers and sisters, if you hear that and you don't think I'm talking about two different things, and you don't apply it in two different ways and understand it and use it in two different ways, right? So where am I going here? Brothers and sisters, when we come back to Jesus' counsel and his shepherding in marital relationships, the work of God's word in our lives is always, brothers and sisters, to draw us to the Lord. And either we will come as his children or we will come as his enemies. And we will either... Handle our desires according to his word, or we will handle his word according to our desires. We will all be brought to the Lord. 
but one with grace and another, brothers and sisters, with everlasting judgment. But ultimately, God's desire and the work of His Word is to bring us to the cross and to draw us near and to provide unity and holiness. And so I say this because I do not believe there are grounds to come and say the judgment of the Lord is the basis of spousal abuse, marital conflict, or men struggling to dominate their wives. I believe it is a gross misreading of the text. But instead, brothers and sisters, our hope for our marriages, in fact, comes from the word of the Lord and his judgment and his justice that leads us to the cross. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for bearing with me. Lord Jesus, my hope this day is that through your word, people will see how gracious, how good, how beautiful you are, how you are for us, Lord, and how you have brought your justice and judgment in our lives, not to tear apart our marriages or our homes, but to draw us near. Indeed, Lord Jesus, you do separate from sin. Indeed, Lord Jesus, you do bring a sword. Indeed, you do divide, Lord, between believers and unbelievers. But Lord Jesus, in you, we have a justice and a judgment that restores us to the blessing and goodness and grace of your word. In your name we pray. Amen.